Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Lions Den podcast. This is episode number 57. I'm your host, Fatty, and I got a very special guest with me here today. Um, this guest exemplifies, embodies the term small world for me. Um, we met a few weeks ago on social media because of uh, so it was an initiative that sh- somebody had shared that she was trying to get people on board for. And then I connected. I said, hey, I'm interested. And then we got to talking. And then I said, hey, listen, this is my podcast. And she goes, wow, I you know, have this very interesting story that just so happens to be on brand. We got to talking. Now we're here. And it turns out we all went to the same high school. We're from the same city. We know the same people. Uh, and of course, I guess in, in very Coptic fashion. So without further ado, everyone welcome Monica to the show. Monica, how are you? I'm well, Betty. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very well. I, uh, I feel like we're best friends, even though we kind of haven't even had an in-person conversation. Uh, but this is uh, th- this is crazy. This is this is wild. It started out by you knowing Mark Hanna, and then it just went from there. And now we know the same people. Basically, I'm pretty sure if we check on Facebook, we probably got a couple of hundred mutual friends. But that's a story uh, for later. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I was doing that this morning when, before our interview. I'm like, who does she know that I would know? Uh, and th- there were a few names in there that I was like, oh, interesting. But uh, yeah, small, small world. I'm happy to have you. I know that uh, you're you're calling in from uh, from the motherland, from Egypt, and uh, from Cairo. From Cairo, and the story of how you got there is is very, very interesting. And it's actually what roped me into wanting to do this interview uh, because I think you have a lot to to provide and a very interesting perspective to provide as well. Um, but I guess before we get started, how are how are things on on your end in in Egypt? Like, what's what are things like right now? How is life? Is is everything back to normal? What's a corona? <laughs> and right? Corona does not exist in this country. Um, disclaimer: Corona does exist in this country, and there are a lot of people who are incredibly sick. But um, life is more or less back to normal here. Uh, I was in Canada for the better half of. So I was there for the first lockdown. I was there for seven months, long story. Um, and I was in full Canada mode. And then I came back here and I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> you went from like wearing masks in your car to not even seeing a mask in public. I went from wearing masks in the car to getting on the metro and having people like there was a girl sitting next to me. And I'm pretty sure I could feel her breathing through my mask. <laughs> I could see them like going by whole one Corona two Corona. Oh, my God. That's crazy. And yeah, they're, they're just, I mean, everything is normal down there. It does, doesn't matter anymore. There was like a, somebody did a, a piece on, I don't know who did it, but it was like, why, why is Egypt just unfazed by Corona? Uh, and uh, it's definitely a, a big mystery. Before the first lockdown at the very beginning, when they were first like, oh, there's this thing called COVID, uh, probably very beginning of March, exactly a year ago, I was looking at apartments and I was going with a real estate agent. I'm, trying to keep away, not shake hands, not anything. And this guy's having a conversation with someone. He goes, oh, there's this thing. Um, apparently, there's this virus. That's okay. We, we've got protein. We've got I'm like, please don't touch me. I'm excited to hear about your like your transition into this country because like it's a whole it's a it's a process just because you're Egyptian by background doesn't mean you're prepared to live in that country. It's a whole different story. So I'm excited to get into that. But Monica, just um, let, let's start off by sharing, you know, what it is that you're up to these days, because I know uh, you had moved to, to Egypt about five years ago, just over five years ago now. So can you share with our listeners what it is that you're up to these days uh, down in, in Cairo? Oh, my God, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> um, so 
I'm a writer, but full disclosure, it took me like 10 times saying that out loud before this phone call for me to like come to terms with it because my imposter syndrome pops in and goes, honey, have you written a book? No. <laughs> have you written anything other than articles on the internet and unnecessarily long Instagram captions? No. Then honey, shut up and sit down. Some people's subconscious is like very motivating. Yours talks trash. I like it. Yes. <laughs> I don't have a cheerleader in my corner. I've got literally cease and desist, but such is, I guess, any creative person's imposter syndrome. Um, However, so I'm a writer, I will own that. Um, But so when I first got here, I came in as a senior editor at Cairo Scene. And then I left, hopped around a little bit, and then uh, co-founded Safareya, which is an online travel magazine based out of the Middle East. Mm I was co-founder and managing director for, I guess, the better half of two plus-ish years. I stepped down from that mid-COVID, and now I'm. People are paying me to put words onto paper, and I, I appreciate it. But um, that's that's kind of where I am. Just on everything from like company profiles to Tinder bios. I kid you not. So <laughs> uh, it's fun. Tinder bios? Are you kidding? Nope. <laughs> That's Egyptian crazy. Tinder is a fun place to be. Oh, I can only imagine. I can only imagine that. Before we move on, I want to ask you a question I forgot to ask in the beginning, but you posted a story. Are there drive throughs in Egypt now? Is that a thing now? Okay, so there's been a McDonald's drive through in Maidi for as long as I've been here, at the very least. I'm pretty wow. sure that's been there for like ages. the one-off. Yeah, most of them are not drive through That one was drive through in Maidi, and now there's one right under my building in the middle of literally in the middle of a giant what used to be a square and is now a bunch of bridges over each other because we're in the business of building bridges in this country yeah when you can't move sideways you just got to move up right so it's uh that's 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 how it works in egypt basically more or less fair enough fair enough so you you had gone to i guess you made the decision to go to egypt but i want to i want to hear from you like the pre-process of that so what was it about Egypt that drew you there? Uh, had you gone there before? Did you know about the culture? So I grew up in Canada. I was there since 96. And we come back to Canada, kind of like <laughs> Portlandia, California. You know. um, I was there since 96. And we come back at the very beginning. It was like once after five years and then after six years. So I was very removed from Egypt as a country growing up. But you, I grew up in the Egyptian community in Mississauga. And so um, you hear more Arabic than you do English in most places. So it's not like I was fully removed from the the culture, but I was removed from the culture in the country. And this is something that came back to bite me in the butt after. But um, we'd come back every few years and towards like, hmm, towards 2009-ish, we came back a lot more frequently. Um, But people in Canada, in my social groups, we're always very curious, like, why do I have this very strange affinity for Egypt? Like, I watch Arabic movies, listen to Arabic music. Um, I was very much that person. Mm -hmm. And nobody understood why. And everyone was like, oh, you only like Egypt because you go there on vacation. And like... That's like the classic response. Yeah. You're only there on vacation. I'm like, okay. Cool. I like that a lot. Honestly, now that I'm here, it is the perfect word. It really is. <laughs> Honestly, like, well, I don't know. Let, let's talk about that a little bit because I feel like even when I have the conversation, like sometimes in passing, I'll say, well, I want to move to Egypt. I want to go to Egypt. And 
the number one response is, oh, you only know because you've been there on vacation. As someone who, yes, went there on vacation, but ended up living there. Is there any merit to a comment like that now that you've experienced it? Um, Yes, but. um, Yes, there is definitely merit in that because being here on vacation is so different than living here. It's so different. But the flip side of that is just because it's different doesn't mean it's unattainable. Doesn't mean it's not enjoyable. Doesn't mean I'm not thriving here more than I was in Canada. Fair enough. So yeah, I used to come here on vacation and now I live here and they are worlds apart and I love them both. Yeah, that's uh, that's very, very interesting. I just wanted to hear that because I felt like that was such a cop-out response, but it probably does have a lot of merit to it. Um, my parents say it all the time and I mean, they live there and here, so I, I have to kind of hear, hear what they have to say, but they're not the only ones to say. I feel like that's the common response to when uh, somebody like us who grew up here says hey i want to move back or i want to go back it's like you don't even understand why you you're here in the first place if you want to move back like that's sort of the the sentiment that i get from it Mm. there's a lot of grit that comes with having to live here there's a lot of like the day-to-day is exhausting um there aren't a lot of the conveniences that we take for granted in canada um and the people i believe who who grew up here and who've experienced it in for a much longer time than we have grow weary like it just it wears on you and so I get that perspective I definitely get that perspective um and I think that in order to be here and push through what it takes to go through the day-to-day you need to have like a big picture purpose of why you're here and why are you still here and why are you still going to stay here otherwise if there's nothing driving you it gets really exhausting yeah absolutely um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your education because you said that the first thing you said, you're a writer. Uh, so you're allegedly a writer. But is that is that what you studied or is that a, like a side passion of yours? Because I can because sometimes like, depending on who's asking, I'll say, yeah, you know, I'm an aspiring podcaster. But that's not what I studied. I didn't I didn't get a degree in podcasting. <laughs> yes, I did. Actually, I have a BA from York. I studied communication studies and English literature. So I was one of the people who did the very non-Egyptian undergrad. Shout outs. Shout outs. Um, <laughs> you did a non-Egyptian undergrad at possibly the most Egyptian university, though. I know. <laughs> My wife went to York and I used to go visit all the time. It was great. Any, it's like a checklist. Of any, any of the 80 friends that you didn't see in the last three years that you want to see, just hit up York and you'll see all of them at the same time. Or McMuster. Yeah, McMuster. Yeah, McMuster. I think, I think now... Mac has taken the what's the word like the trophy, the championship in terms of biggest Coptic community. I mean, I'm I'm disconnected from the university world, but I feel like, you know, based on the rumblings, based on what I hear, Laurier, uh, Laurier is a huge one right now. And uh, Mac as well is a big one. But when I was going through when you were going through it, York was the spot like York. um, What do they have? Like the square that they are. I don't even know what they called it, but it was like the one place where all the Egyptians hung out. Um, so it's ironic you did it I don't even remember anymore and now I feel like a dinosaur thank you (laughs) yeah no worries it's my pleasure um so so you did um you did a very non-Egyptian undergrad um what was what was the process like when you were choosing what to do was there any influence from the community from family uh at all in terms of what you had to choose or what you should have chosen um no not at all I think that so giant shout my parents my parents are incredibly open-minded people even though growing up I used to see the polar opposite um they're super supportive in whatever it is that I've chosen to pursue I've always been a person of 
crazy spontaneous ideas and they're always like oh god okay <laughs> um and they they choose to support it anyway and so when i was applying and this was oh god this was ages ago um i applied for english and communication stuff but i also applied for criminology um and i actually in my undergrad dabbled back and forth between a bunch of different majors and then took a year and went to college and did print journalism and then went back to york um and through all of that, they were super supportive. And what ultimately um, pushed my decision in terms of which university was that I had applied to everything. Um, they, I would have had to move for all of my other options. And York was the only local one. Right. And uh, I've got a younger sister. And I was like, you know what? I need to be here because she needs a big sister. And I want to be the big sister. And so I'm just going to stay local. Yeah. And so I ended up at York. And then that's, at Durham for a year and then back at York. That's very admirable because I also had a younger sister and my process was the complete opposite. I'm like, I need to get out of here. Let her grow up on her own. Honestly, it's funny. Like my sister and I never got along until I left for university. I think it was like one of those until until you were like forced to be apart because we're five years apart. So when I was going to university, she was still in elementary school. So there was a bit of like, get this guy out of the house. Like I'm trying to, you know, I have my own place. And you know how they are at 13, like 12, 13, that age. Um, but then after, I mean, being away, I think is what helped uh, both of us realize that hey, like your siblings are pretty important. You're you're a lot closer than you think. So it's, it's funny you bring that up. Our, our process, although everything up until that point for both of us has been identical, that process was a little bit different. We even went to the same high school. Uh, I just missed you for a year. <laughs> yep. I ended up experiencing that after I moved to Egypt. Uh, my sister and I are nine years apart. And so what you and your sister were going through, we went through when I was moving here. Yeah. Yeah. Except the difference is I could drive back from St. Catharines and like just hang out for the weekend. That's not really an option for you. No, no. So I, before we talk about the whole move to Egypt, the culture and everything, I want to know about your career in writing because anytime you have a creative dream or your career is something that involves this like outlandish creativity it's really hard to make it in, in your field so i want to hear about your path uh through writing through the industry and, and what you've learned from that um so i don't feel like there was much of a path for me I, honestly i used to hate reading and writing when i was younger i hated it with every fiber of my being until i found an incredible incredible high school teacher who saw something in me and pushed it uh, significantly. Yeah. And that's where I was like, okay, so maybe this is something I can enjoy and something I can do. And as a freelancer, it literally started with, yo, can you edit my essay? <laughs> it literally started like that. <laughs> Everybody and their mother. I'm like, okay, I could edit your essay. Sure. I could edit your essay. Pay me. Um, and it went from there. And I've, I mean, I've been working uh, as a part-timer ever since I was 14. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 14. Yeah. Uh, food service, customer service, you name it. And as a fresh grad, I was like, okay, I don't really know where to go from here, but I think I'm supposed to like be a freelancer. And that means like, I need to develop my website and stuff. I've been doing this stuff on the side and I've been writing and I've been blogging. I've been blogging since forever, mm -hmm. but how do I actually turn this into a proper like business as a freelancer? And bear in mind, this was like 2013 ish. And so this is a while ago. Um, and at the time, I was working a mac and cheese food truck, working at like food festivals. That sounds crazy, by the way. Mac and cheese food truck is probably delicious. Uh, sure. Until <laughs> <laughs> you're in the back of the uh, house. Of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> and so at the time, I was in the position where I'm like, okay, I've got whatever it is, freelance stuff that's happening on the side. I need to build a website and build a brand for myself, etc. And then I up and moved to Egypt. 
And so there was not much before that. And the only reason I managed to land my incredibly senior position at a leading lifestyle magazine in Egypt is because I wrote a proper cover letter. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, that wasn't my question, but I was going to ask if if you're fluent in uh, every... What's the word? Fluency? Is that a word? Yeah, fluency is a word. So, okay. If, I don't know if it... Was it your fluency in English that, that got you that job? But I guess it's your cover letter that got you the job. Because that, that was my that was my next thing. Like, did you go to Egypt employed by Kairosine? Or did you go to Egypt and apply to Kairosine? So, I'm going to zoom out a little bit and use this as a segue to tell you that story. I, I was in Egypt for... I was here on vacation. And everybody and their mother was like, Oh, so what do you do? Try to pay and I'm like, so how do you explain to like Amiti and the cousins, friends, Mashadif mean that I work a mac and cheese food truck and I'm freelancing editing things? Like, how do you? You, you, you can't. can't. It's foreign. Completely. And it's it's a long process that I was not about to do. So I like I had a spiel of like, oh, I have a degree in this and this and I'm not working right mm-hmm. now. Everybody and their mama on that trip was like, oh, have you considered teaching English in Egypt? Um, Because one... I have the foreign passport, two, it pays in dollars, three, I have the language. Uh, four, I can't teach children. Yeah. I can't. I don't have the patience for it. And God bless those who do, but it is not something that I'm capable of doing at mm-hmm. all. And so the first two weeks, I was like, no, no, no. And then the next two weeks, I was like, oh, I have a degree in this. And I'm looking at teaching English in Egypt because I, for the longest time, I'd always wanted to come here for a little bit and see if I can do life here. Everybody was like, you know, you only like it when you come on vacation. I'm like, okay, let me see if I can do this. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, so maybe I can find my way through doing this. And so I was here for a month and I went back because my mother would have gone crazy if I just decided to stay while I was on that trip. And so um, I went back and I started looking profusely everywhere for jobs while I was in Canada. Um, And I had completely given up. I was looking at everything. I'd given up completely. And I found an Instagram post where Kairosine was looking for a senior copy editor. And that's exactly what I do. And so I shot them an email. And I think what did it was uh, the, the fluency and the, um, the fluency in the cover letter and just my ability to communicate, I yeah. guess. Um, and just the way that I packaged all of that together. And so I shot off that, uh, that email with my resume and my cover letter and within eight days I was on the flight wow okay so within eight days and, and and one very important thing is that the flight that you were on was a flight after you bought a one-way ticket not a two-way yes sir so one way so let's talk about that process the decision making um like what went into all of that and how did you just decide to up and leave was it hard honestly that was a whole lot of Jesus that really was um Everything that happened in those eight days, insofar as I can remember it anyway, because this was over five years ago now, um, everything was orchestrated in a way that, you know, you couldn't script this if you tried. Um, It comes down to things like I was sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, we were just having a cup of tea or something, and I was talking about where the office is going to be in Egypt and where I was going to be staying, and I'm like, oh, it's so close to Zemelik, and I'd barely gone to Zemelik. I think I'd maybe visited Zemelik once in my entire 20-something years mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, it's so close to Zemelik. It would be so nice if I could uh, if I could live there. I hear it's such a nice area. And while we're having that conversation, I got an email from the person who hired me going, hey, Mon, so excited to have you on board. Listen, I don't know what your living accommodations look like, but we've got a friend and coworker who 
has a flatmate who's moving out at the end of the month. I'm coming in that same day. And um, I don't know if you're looking for to find a flat or something. Uh, if you want to have a, a chat with her, she lives in Zemelik. And mm-hmm. I ended up moving mm-hmm. in and moving in with wow. that girl. Wow. And so it was literally, it was moments like this. And my entire Egypt story is laden with moments like this where it's like, hey, I got you. Just go. Yeah, I, I'm going to interrupt you for one second and let you continue. But for anyone who doesn't know, like Zemelik in Egypt is actually lit. Like to live in Zemelik is actually crazy. That's all I wanted to say. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, it definitely is. Um, one of my favorite areas. <laughs> it's actually sick. Yeah. So those eight days and that decision um, all kind of looked like that. And so I, for lack of better terms, chose to trust the process. And clearly something far bigger than me was happening. And I just, in those moments, shut up and sit down or shut up and go, you know? Um, And it, no, it wasn't easy. But at the same time, because it was super spontaneous in a sense, it happened so quickly that I didn't realize what I was doing until I, so until I landed in Cairo at 6 a.m., my phone's not turning on. I'm at my apartment before moving in with this girl. Like we've got an apartment here. At my apartment, it's super dark. My phone won't turn on. I can't connect with anybody. And I'm sitting there in bed bawling going, what did you do? What did you just do? That's crazy. That's crazy. And that's got to be like a moment there where you're like, man, like this is this is somewhat of an irreversible decision. Like, yeah, ultimately I can end up going back. But it's tough when you're in that position, especially like, you know, when you when you just move there, you feel like you have nobody. Um Tell us about the culture, like uh, the transition, because you had grown up. I think you mentioned in Mississauga, uh, which I mean, like, is not the furthest thing from Egypt, but it's still pretty far considering it's it's still Canada. So talk about the shock of, of just like being in that country versus being here. Um, so my culture shock was actually fully in reverse um, because and I'll try not to overanalyze this, but because the world that I live in in Canada and I've met other people here who grew up abroad and came back here and had similar perceptions where the Egypt that we have in our minds is one that comes very much from the popular culture that we consume. And so we come here almost in search of that Egypt that we don't personally know. And um, having come here on vacations, I'm used to a particular like type of Egypt. But I came back and I'm so grateful because this was an incredible stepping stone. I came back into the world of the um, digital media advertising bubble. And that is the closest thing to North America meets Egypt mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Um, and so to them, to a lot of the people that were there uh, that I was working with, I spoke really good Arabic. I was dropping Ifehet Aflam that were super dated, but they're still there. And um, to them, I literally, somebody called me, and I'm pretty sure that if I bump into him, he'll still call me this. What does that mean? He was, um, he was like, like, how are you from Canada? How do you... Yeah. How are you so integrated into the culture Elehena? How do you speak more Arabic than some of these people that we work with that grew up here? How are you more familiar with this world than these guys? Because um, in that scene and in particular pockets of that scene, um, there's almost a dissonance. And one of my favorite things was walking out of the office and crossing the street and finding the Fekeheni where I'm like, these are, this is a clash of two worlds that 
where one practically doesn't know that the other one exists, but yeah. they both occupy that same space. Um, and so my culture shock was reversed in that I discovered this world that exists within Egypt that I didn't even know existed. This this bubble within the media industry. Yeah. And and sorry, to anybody listening who doesn't know what a Fekahani is, it's actually the best concept ever. It's just like a guy or two people, whatever the case may be, just set up outside in the street with a bunch of fresh fruit. And you just walk by. You It's like going to the grocery store and picking up your fruit, but you're doing it in a public place. And it's all like, it's just amazing fruit. And it, it's very traditional. I just want to clarify because I feel like some people might not know what that is. That's all. That's that's the bulk of the culture shock that I experienced. And um, the I guess the the progress of that was that after coming to terms with the fact that this world exists, um, I then started to navigate my way through the, the Egypt that I was looking for and the Egypt that I had come here for and the like everyday life in Egypt. And it wasn't a culture shock so much as it was an identity crisis for me because walking through the streets of, example, um, walking through the streets of Shobra, of Abbasiyah, of parts of downtown, and spaces where I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be at home, mm-hmm. places like Dohir, where, where part of my family is from, and where that feels like home to me. I'm walking through in search of home in search of this feeling and I love it but I stand out like a sore thumb and so um my culture shock was more of a cultural identity crisis where I am too foreign for I'm too foreign for home and I'm too like how am I supposed to navigate this yeah is is this supposed to be home and so thus began my my identity crisis that is still not yet over interesting stuff that's that's a very deep way of looking into it. Like, uh, and it, like you said, it, it's just, you got to figure out who you are. And, and sometimes that takes a little bit longer. Like what's the process like of figuring out who you are? Like, well, what kind of things do you put yourself through to figure out, Hey, this is what I like. This is what I am. This is who I am. Like, is there a specific way that you go about it? Or is it just every day is a part of figuring out yourself? Dude, you're running a one hour podcast. Don't do this to yourself. <laughs> do your thing. Don't even worry. Um, uh- well, it's figuring out who you are in in this context, in this um, in this mess of am I a local or am I a foreigner, is an everyday experience. And in Egypt, it's so easy to to close ourselves up into the little bubbles and the little pockets that are our world. So it's so easy for me to leave my apartment, hop in an Uber, go to. Um, some cafe or some restaurant or wherever it is that I'm going and then hop in Uber, hop back. And it's so easy to confine ourselves into these bubbles and social bubbles, uh, geographic bubbles. But um, what I've constantly needed to do and constantly do to remind myself of where I am and what's going on is that, for example, I'll walk through downtown Cairo and I stop and it drives people insane because I do physically stop in the middle of downtown. Um, and I look up at the buildings and I have to pause and be like, okay, minor out of body experience. You're in Egypt. You live here now. This is Cairo. This is the space where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history and, and culture and art collide. Yeah. And looking at these buildings and taking all of this in just kind of renews that novelty for me, but also gives me a sense of where I am and, and what I call home. Um, 
but who I am in terms of what well, am I Egyptian or am I Canadian or am I a little bit of both or where do I belong in all of this is um, an everyday mental battle that I yeah it's an everyday mental battle I think we'll leave it at that yeah no that's uh, that's totally fair and it's it's not easy especially when you're going through such a big transition and you know one thing i want to ask you too is it kind of relates to this transition that you made but there's got to be some things that monica now you you can't do or can't wear or can't say that you would have been able to do or wear or say here in canada and it's not necessarily a bad thing but it's just a difference in culture like have you found that there are those things that you would have never guessed uh, you would have to change or not or refrain from at all uh so yeah definitely there are things that i can't wear in certain places um and it's it's all about feeling out the space and the environment that you're walking into so for example if i'm going to get on the metro i'm not going to wear the same thing as if i'm going to get an uber and go over to tegamo it's not the same and so it's feeling out the contexts but in terms of uh, behaviors and stuff like that, um, I don't think, or maybe I've been here for too long for me to be able to, to still see it, yeah. but I don't think there's anything that I've had to fully refrain from that caught me, uh, that caught me off guard. But um, I, so in the areas where I thought I was going to feel at home and I felt foreign, the reality was that this is the culture of this space. And I'm an outsider, whether I like it or not. I'm an outsider. No matter how yeah. much it feels like home, I'm an outsider. And I cannot change this space to accommodate me. And I need to accommodate myself within this space. And if that means that it is stupid hot outside and I'm going to have to wear long sleeves because otherwise X, Y, or Z, I'm going to wear the sleeves and I'm going to grumble about it endlessly that mm -hmm. I'm going to wear the sleeves or whatever, yeah. whatever it is, right? Yeah, um, sure. so there are adjustments definitely, but they're, they're not as stark as one would expect insofar as I've experienced. Interesting. Okay. And I asked Mark this question too, and, and his answer to it was, was a little bit, not what I was expecting. I like the answer, but I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, you're like his name, Mark Hanna, your name, Monica Gerges. These are very Coptic names, like off the bat, like you don't even need to tell me anything more. I know you're a Christian. Maybe I don't know if you're Coptic, but I know you're a Christian. So obviously we know in Egypt that there are a lot of situations where being Christian is, is not an advantage. Um, so have you personally felt anything in a work setting, in your personal life at all with regards to that? I'm not going to lie to you. He said he hasn't. He said he knows it exists, but he's been fortunate to not have experienced that at work. But have you experienced anything like that? Honestly, no. I don't think I've ever had to deal with something like that. I think possibly the extent of it was um, a work situation where they were talking about like, do we give December 25th off as a holiday as well? Because here it's January 7th. Yeah. And so they were debating yeah. the December 25th. And then someone was like, no, Mishadif, if they don't like it, F on Mishadif. And then I just looked at him and I'm like, say that again. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's yeah, like that was that was yeah, literally it yeah exactly exactly which see which which is honestly the exact same thing mark said and why why i preface with saying i didn't expect that is because when you're here and you hear of all these things it, it feels like it happens all the time it feels like it's a thing that's looming over the air but now i'm talking to people who actually live there both of you have said the same thing that it's not very common in in the work that you do so that that's 
that's pretty great. Like, I, I'm happy to hear that. Honestly, it's a little bit. Uh... So it doesn't happen in our worlds. And I, I say that as a, as a joint thing, because um, I don't come from, I, I don't live in Minya. I don't live for us youth. I don't even live in Shobra. You know, I don't live downtown. I've been fortunate to live in spaces and interact with people and work with people and network and mingle with people um, in a culture within which this doesn't happen. At least not to my face, at least not that I'm aware of. Yeah, um, yeah. And I feel like uh, as much as as much as this is a thing and as much as, yes, Christians are definitely the minority here, um, and as much as, yes, there are places where it's dangerous to be a Christian person in particular contexts, um, moving here in um, moving here into the world that I've moved into has been a privilege. Yeah, I am absolutely privileged for for living in the contexts that I live in in Cairo. And, and that's that's an amazing thing to, to feel and to, to be able to live as well. Now, I I want to ask you, like the your last five years in Egypt, obviously, you've learned a lot. You've experienced a lot. You've gone through a lot. Do you find that this is a place that you can call home for the rest of your life? Or is this like a temporary? I don't want to say trip because you've been there over five years and you're working and you're a part of the culture. It's not a trip. But is it a temporary stint in Egypt or do you actually see yourself being there for good? Have you thought about that? Um, I've definitely thought about that. Right now, Egypt is home. Like, I'll say that right off the bat. Egypt is home. Um, even though home is where mama is, definitely. But yeah. that aside, <laughs> Egypt is home. Do you have family in Egypt? I have extended family in Egypt. Okay. My parents and my sister are still in Canada, but I do have, like, I met Mukhlin and stuff like that. Today. Okay. Um, so Egypt is definitely home. Uh, and to put, let me put it this way. I was called out here. I was drawn out here. I, I was orchestrated and narrated out here. And I'm going to be here until he says otherwise. Um, I know that I'm here for a season and I know that the season's not yet over. Um, but when I look at Egypt in terms of long term, in terms of can I live here, get married here, have children here, etc. There are a lot of hurdles that... Um, that I'm not going to process. I'm not going to get ahead of myself and process all of them. I'm yeah. kind. I'm kind of just taking that one step at a time. But there are definitely pros and cons to being here full time. Yeah. Being here long term. For sure. Um. I wanna. I wanna ask you a quick question because you mentioned earlier that you were the co-founder of Safareya. It was your own. Your own process. So I just want to know from you, like, what's it like going through like stuff like that where you're starting a business in a foreign country. Um, like, was it hard for you to, to figure out what, what idea that you wanted to do? Was this an idea that you wanted to do for a while that, and that was just the time that, that it came or was it an idea that popped up as an opportunity and you just ran away with it? So it was definitely something that kind of just popped up because, um, at the end of, I believe it was my second year here, mm -hmm. I was, mm -hmm. I was essentially looking at, okay, so I'm in Egypt right now and I'm here until when? or to what end, or what am I doing with myself here? My family is back in Canada, right. I'm over here. If I'm gonna be here, there needs to be something that's that's 110% worth my being here. And at the time, the job that I was working was not that. And so I gave myself a deadline. And I was like, if at the end of this year, and I believe that was the end of 2017, I moved in 2015. But if by the end of 2017, 
I there isn't something keeping me here where it would be dumb for me to pick up and leave. So if, if professionally or anything like that, it would be stupid of me to pick up and go back to Canada where I'd essentially have to start all over professionally. Then mm-hmm. I'm leaving. And Safareya was born as an idea at the tail end of 2017, at the very beginning of 2018. Um, and it was the product of a couple of different conversations. And um, one of my co-founders was looking, for, he was trying to research, he wanted to do a, a cross-Africa trip um, on land. And he was trying to research a bunch of information and he couldn't find information that was relevant to being Egyptian. And so if you have an Egyptian passport, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you go here, etc. And there was such a there was such a lack of information. And so from here for us came this idea of, okay, so this doesn't exist and people need these resources. And so he also has an editorial background um, and he has an Arabic editorial background. I have an English editorial background. And so we kind of just joined forces on that. And we're like, okay, let's let's bring this baby to life. How do we do this? Um, Yeah. So when you first started it, did you have any idea into what a business is, how to start a business, how to operate a business? No, no. Yes. So I want to I want to hear about that. See, it sounds like it sounds like something that really shook you. Now, I want to hear about that, like, because that's a tough thing for anybody who's going through it. And I often ask people on the show um, because they come from different educational backgrounds and they have a lot of skills, but they end up starting their own business with no business experience. So let's talk about that and especially being in a different country so what kind of lessons could you did you take away from the starting of that business and what did you learn oh so i learned to love excel sheets (laughs) (laughs) i learned that excel sheets are my friends everybody on my team has grown to love excel sheets hate me a little bit but love excel sheets um that aside um i so this is gonna get a little meta here but i learned that i am capable of doing a lot more than i gave myself credit for um, because starting a business when you have no idea what the expletive that you're, it is that you're doing is really difficult because, um, thankfully I was not doing this alone. I did have two partners. Um, and that definitely had its pros and its cons, but there are a lot of things where you had to learn by doing, and you had to learn by messing it up and you had to learn by going, Oh, whoops. Okay. Cool. So that sucks. And pulling yourself out of that. And there were so, so, so many moments of literally sitting on the bathroom floor in the office, door locked, bawling my eyes out, going, there's a team out there expecting me to lead them, expecting me to be the responsible adult who knows what they're doing, because apparently I started a business and I don't know what I'm doing. So did you hire people? You, You had a team with you? Yeah, yeah, we had a team. Uh, we were three founders and our team fluctuated up to, I think at some point we were about 10 people. Oh, wow. Okay. So you had a lot of, okay, so that's a whole other beast. The two-headed monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leading leading teams and managing um, managing people and managing, managing people in a way that gets work done, but also still invests in the people who are pouring themselves into this thing that you've that you've birthed um, is is complicated and it's tricky and there was a lot of Monica being a monster and there was a lot of Monica learning not to be a monster and there was a lot of grace my god yeah, there was yeah. so much grace <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and that's got to be something about like figuring who you are out too like I'm sure there was a lot of uh, inadvertent soul searching that was happening as as you were doing this business like you're learning about how you react under stress, uh, how you are in terms of operating a business. So can you share any lessons that you learned based on on that? So hmm, that's a tougher question than I expected. I guess among the things that I learned about myself 
is that I am a perfectionist and I have serious professional trust issues where it was always a matter of why let so-and-so do this when I'm going to have to fix it. So I might as well just do it myself. Mm -hmm. And there was always this, when you're building from the ground up, there's always a next step. There is always a like, oh, we can celebrate, but not yet because we still haven't achieved this or we still haven't done that or we still haven't, we still haven't, we still haven't. And there's this endless, endless, endless series of hmm, steps or milestone successes. Mm -hmm. And what that ended up doing for me is that I dove into work because this is my baby. And if no one else is going to take care of it, my God, then I will do it. And I poured every fiber of my being into this baby, um, every single fiber of my being to the point where I became a workaholic and it was a problem. I lost friends because I was not committed to giving them enough of my time because I was always invested in work. I, um, I ended up pushing a lot of very basic necessities of life to the side. Like what is food? What is sleep? Uh, What is work-life balance? Because I can't be doing something without thinking, oh, but I could be working right now. I could be finishing that proposal. I could be editing this. I could be writing that. You know, I could be managing this. And so I stepped away from a lot of different social commitments. And honestly, I ended up losing some of the dearest people to my heart because as much as they would sit there and go, hey, um, we're here and we support you, but you need to invest in us as well. Like we're here and we're hurting and you're just pouring into work and you're pouring into work and that's all that you're doing. And in the back of my head, I'm like, but they don't understand. They don't understand. This is my baby. They don't understand if I don't do this, then I'm going to fail. And I had such a fear of failure that I drowned by being a workaholic. And then all of these things that happened as a result of being a workaholic, I drowned by being a further workaholic. And so it was a hot mess. Um, yeah. And I ended up stepping down from Safariya in part because you cannot pour from an empty cup. And I had been so depleted yeah. that خلاص, there is nothing more that I can give without taking this thing down with me. And that's not what I want. At all. I helped build yeah. it and I don't want to, I don't want to tear it down. Yeah. I, I tore me down. I tore down my relationships. I tore down my social life. I tore down my health. I tore down my sanity. I tore down a lot of things. I'm not going to tear this thing down too. And yeah. so uh, my name is Monica and I'm a recovering workaholic. <laughs> Hi, Monica. Uh, no, but I, I appreciate that. Like, I appreciate your openness with that because that's a tough thing to talk about. And, and I, I want to unpack a couple of things because you said earlier, your first answer was, I realize that I'm a perfectionist. And I know at least 40% of the people listening are probably like, you know, rolling their eyes. Oh, everyone says I'm a perfectionist. But when you have your own thing your own business your own podcast your own blog your own whatever it is that you yourself started from the from the rubbles like you started it as a draft on google like it's it's a different it's a different beast having to turn that over to somebody that you could have just met two weeks ago somebody who you don't you don't know inside and out and someone that you now have to rely on to give as much effort as you the founder and it's so much harder. Like, I know that on a religious level because obviously I have two of my own platforms. So I understand the difficulty in giving up some of the work and giving up some of the responsibility. And when there's, on in your case, when there's money involved, when there's people livelihood, people's livelihood involved, it makes it even harder. So 
I just wanted to unpack that a little bit because I feel like when when you when people hear perfectionist, they they sort of just like turn off the click. No, that's not the case at all. Like you are a perfectionist, and as a result, you end up becoming you're spiraling into this phase of being a workaholic that never ends and it just gets busier and busier and busier because there's always in your mind things that you could do or more things that you could do to get this thing up and running yep absolutely um uh, perfectionism i think gets labeled as like oh they just want to do things um they're just they're being extra you know they're just they're being extra they just want things done a certain way they're just words i can't say right now but it, it comes down to for me it came down to trust issues yeah i had professional trust issues and i had a huge fear of failure and that perfectionism was born of my fear of failure mm -hmm. because as a creative as a creative anything or as an entrepreneur or, or as someone who has given birth to something this thing is part of you right every piece of anything that i write is part of me every you know a business that i started is part of me and if that fails, then I fail with. Yeah. And I think that's such an important thing for creatives to realize that you need to. And it's something I'm working on right now is that you need to dissociate you as a person from your craft or your business or whatever it is that you're doing, because it's failures are not your failures. What it has become is not what you have become. You are not one and the same. Yeah. Facts. That's a bar. Um, one last thing before we move on to the next question that I wanted to point out about um, what you had mentioned earlier is it, how challenging is it as an employer, as somebody who has a team of employees to find the balance between respecting them and their work and also having your own obsession with your business, like being a workaholic? Because like what I mean by that is like, did you ever find that your like your overcommitment to the work? made them feel like their work was not as good or that their quality of work wasn't good so you needed to overcompensate was that ever a thing i think that's a question that would be better asked to the employee rather than the employer fair enough my perception could be that like oh no of course not and they're sitting over there going are you effing kidding me <laughs> fair enough genuinely don't know no that's fair that's fair i was always wondering because i feel like when like that's if i asked the employee i'd imagine they would say yes at some point like maybe it's not they didn't feel like blatantly disrespected by you as in you came in and said, hey, you're useless. You're doing nothing for me. But it's the looking at them, redoing your work, being stressed out about it, being annoyed about it. It's like these are all things that you, you're, as an employer, it's your subconscious. You're not really aware it's happening. Uh, but people around you could, could see as well. Um, before I before I let you go and, and tackle the rest of your day, um, I just want to know, like, the last question I have slated for you here is, is probably a terrible question. Not like now that I look at it, it's literally what do you love most about what you do, um, which is a terrible question because we, I don't even know what it is that you do. I can't pinpoint like finger. Me neither. I can't put my finger on <laughs> one thing, right? So it's it's impossible to say what it is that you love most about what you do. But what I want to say is what is probably the most important lesson that you've learned in your last five years, if you could even come up with one. Um, but something that really stood out to you as a lesson to learn in, in your experiences over the last five years. Oh, that's tough. I think if I could give you a couple of things off the top of my head, uh, one, exude grace, exude grace for people around you and for yourself more than anything else. Um, because we're often way too hard on ourselves professionally and way too hard on the people around us generally. So exude grace all the time. 
Um, and I guess another thing is to not let things lose their novelty. Um, because being here for so long, it's really easy to to let the novelty wear out. And the things that used to excite me when I first got here, like the smell of fresh baladi bread from El Forn was one of my favorite things. And it's so easy to, to you know, just walk by it and be like, oh yeah, Forn. No, like don't let the novelty wear out and just yeah. stop and zoom out wherever it is that you are, whatever it is that you're doing. Stop and zoom out and pause to just regain that novelty because otherwise we end up hamsters running around. I like that a lot because I think that applies to anybody, whether you're in Egypt or in a move or just at home. Just, you know, enjoy the enjoy the little things, because like you said, you'll just become a hamster running around uh, aimlessly. Um, We almost got through the whole interview without hearing sirens. But you got to you got to leave it up to Egypt for the last two minutes to throw it in there. And I loved it. It was. It was every bit of what I wanted, you know, like if you'd like, if you'd like, I can just to close us off. I can step outside and let you hear the sounds of what it's like to live above a bridge in the middle of Heliopolis. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. We can you can answer like the last little bit there outside outdoors. Get a very authentic experience. I'm so sorry for what you're about to deal with. I just I just want to hear the honking happen. But honestly, Monica, um, I can't thank you enough for your time. Like we've literally had maybe this is our only non-text conversation and it, it felt very natural. I appreciate your time. I loved hearing about your story, your journey, uh, and I'm jealous because I love Egypt and I would love to be uh, there at one point, but we'll see. We'll see what, what God has in store for me. You or anybody listening, come visit anytime. You've always got a friend who will show you around and not take you to malls because you've got enough of those in Canada. Yeah. There's honestly, I'm loving hearing all the honking. Like this is great. This is very nostalgic for me. I appreciate that. Thank you for doing that for me and for the listeners, Monica, and have a great rest of your day. You too. It was so great chatting with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Monica Gerges. Monica, thank you so much for going out onto the balcony and letting me hear those honks. It was a lot more nostalgic than I thought it would be, and I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to learn about Monica's journey, Monica's, you know, culture difference between being here and being in Egypt, adjusting, starting a business, the whole nine. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Um, shout out to Daniel, Chef Daniel, Chef Danny, because uh, he shared the post that ended up getting her and I introduced and ultimately to do this interview. So I appreciate that. Um, Monica, you're the best. Thank you for coming on. And you know where to find me. Anyone who's uh, looking to listen to more episodes on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, follow on Instagram, and I'll come at you next episode.